So Jesse, our youngest son is five months old, and I'm learning some new things about myself as a parent. During the day, Jesse is a very sweet, a super sweet, I would say, child, nice and smiley and chirpy and engaging and big googly eyes. But at night, <laughs> at night, friends, he is something of a screeching hellion. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. Like many parents, new parents especially, are not getting much sleep at night. And I need to be clear this morning, um, I'm getting more sleep than my wife is, but neither of us are getting much sleep. Jesse is a whaler. He has got some pipes on him. And thank goodness he smells so good. You know that new baby smell there on the head? And he's so playful during the day because every day he builds up just enough social capital <laughs> that he can spend it all down at night. So here's, here's what I'm learning in that process of parenting another child um, in the big picture of that parenting process, both around the nighttime screaming, but also the, all the other parts of parenting as well. I'm learning, again, and this, I think I learn this all the time. I told my wife as I preached this, prepared for this sermon, I said, you know, the amazing thing about ministry is I actually get to preach the sermon I need to hear every single Sunday. <laughs> so uh, it's a blessing if this lands for you in some sort of way, but this is just my reminder about life and about parenting, and I'm learning this again with Jesse, is that parenting is a lot less about doing and much more about being and becoming. When I first started my parenting journey, I was very much anchored in a set of questions around doing, which would have looked like this, had I been parenting in this way with Jesse. What do I do about Jesse's crying? How do, how do I fix these problems with he's not taking the bottle or he's crying too much? Uh, whatever those problems are, how do I fix these problems? What do I do? How do I do it uh, to this baby? Like, how do I fix this baby? And what I'm really learning, it sounds silly to say it that way, but like I had that mentality. What I'm really learning more deeply in my spirit with this second child in our life is that Jesse is not a problem to fix. No human being is. So when it's my turn in the middle of the night, I stumble into his room all bleary-eyed, and I start to coo at him and gently rock him. And then I turn on the hairdryer really loud because the white noise often soothes him back to sleep. I think we actually burned out the cool setting on the hairdryer, so we need to get a new hairdryer. And as I lay on the floor next to him, next to his crib, I think to myself in that sort of sleep-deprived place, you know, Jesse really only has one agenda, one primary task of his being, and it is to become as deeply connected and embedded in our family as possible. He is programmed, he's hardwired to connect with us through smiles, through those chirps, through those googly eyes, and even, yes, through the screeching. His job is to ask for and get the attention and the presence and the touch that he needs to become the person he needs to become. Through those interactions and our response to him, we weave this connective tissue that holds us, that creates 
accountability and joy and responsibility. We help him become the child he will become. He helps us become the parents we need to become. Together, we co-create a new family. We become a new thing. Thinking of it this way, this connective tissue way, reminds me of the way that Parker Palmer, an author, describes love. Love, he says, is the connective tissue of reality. The, the tissue that will wrap us up in a bond of awesome responsibility as well as transforming joy. The tissue that will claim us, love will claim us and call us to involvement and mutuality and accountability. So in those moments with Jesse, at night and during the day, there is a powerful force making a claim on our lives. That force, according to Parker Palmer and many other spiritual teachers, is love. They suggest that love is the fascia, the tendons, the ligaments, the bones that holds reality together. It's the skin that connects all of creation. Now, if you're some kind of scientist or an astrophysicist or a mathematician, you might be thinking, love is not the connective tissue of reality. The connective tissue of reality is gravity or quantum mechanics or even evolution, which is the powerful force that acts on our lives. And in a purely rational universe, I suppose that is true. Love doesn't hold anything together in a purely scientific universe. Love is not connective tissue. You cannot see love under a microscope or, or explain it in a formula. So one could say the universe is driven by scientific principles and natural laws. That's the driver. That's true, I suppose. And on a planet, filled with human beings who are seeking to discover some deeper purpose in their lives, who are yearning to discover the connections among and between creation, we need a life-giving story that calls us to mutuality and to accountability. Because we live and die by the stories we tell. We don't have to dismiss the science, but we do need a bigger story than just the science. The story of love as the connective tissue of reality, it is a poetic metaphor to describe how we all come from the same source and are bound together. And that story, that metaphor, invites us to respond to the claim of love on our lives. And that is the foundation, the very base, the essence of my faith, and many times a source of great hope. But I'm not going to lie to you. There are days when I come into this sanctuary, as I know you do because you have told me, I come into this place full of despair, simply not feeling myself in that connective web. I come in here at times full of despair for the planet and the path we seem to be on. I come into this sanctuary on weeks like this, full of despair for the unending, the relentless, and the catastrophic gun violence that surrounds us in this country. I come in here sometimes full of despair for the racial and economic 
disparities that seem to be growing. I know I'm not alone in that sense of despair. I know I'm not alone in looking around and thinking to myself, like Terry Tempest Williams' students, what do I do? What do I do? What can I do in the face of all that is broken? We want to do something, right? We want to do something because otherwise it's just going to get worse. And I don't know about you, but when I get in that panicky, fearful place about needing to do something and do something now, I'm more likely just to end up exacerbating my fear and my despair or simply just numbing out overwhelmed. Which is why Terry Tempest Williams' question is such a good one. Not what do I do, but who am I becoming? Who am I becoming in the face of these things? Who am I becoming in the face of fear? And I have to tell you, when I first read this interview and read that question, who am I becoming, I felt a shock of deep knowing. This was the right spiritual question, the foundational spiritual question, the one that must be answered before we can do much of anything. When I'm overwhelmed by the weight of the world, the question, who am I becoming, opens up something deep in me. I feel this softness settle in my body, a letting go of something hard, a shedding of a skin that was too tight, and a movement into a more spacious place. Who am I becoming? Am I becoming a more curious and compassionate person? Am I becoming more grounded, more resilient, more joyful? Am I becoming more deeply aware of the connective tissue of reality, love, that makes a claim on my life, that calls me into deeper relationship and deeper accountability with creation? Who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? About eight years ago, maybe nine, eight or nine years ago, I began volunteering with Amicus, an organization here in town that pairs men and women in prison with someone from the community. Many incarcerated folks, you may or may not know this, they have no friends at all. Their family often uh, distances themselves and whatever relationships they had disappear when they're incarcerated. So this program seeks to partner them with someone which can really be a life-saving relationship as they prepare for re-entry into the community. So in this program, Amicus, I was partnered with a man from Lino Lakes Correctional Facility, and he's given me permission to share this story. I'll never forget the initial fear after Amicus had made the match and this man first called me. There's a recorded message before we had a chance to talk to one another. There's a recorded message saying, uh, this call is from an inmate at Lino Lakes Correctional Facility. To block calls from this number, you know, press one. To accept this call, press zero. And I, ended, I did press zero. I had signed up for this relationship. But with a lot of hesitation, I wondered what he would want from me, what he would ask of me. Was this even safe? And there was fear, deep fear, on those first visits when I went to Lino Lakes Correctional Facility. There were the metal detectors and the guards. There were the rules of the visiting room. And there was the anger in this man I was visiting. I could sense it in him. 
When I filled out the paperwork on each visit in that first year, there was always a line, what's your relationship to the inmate you're seeing? And I would always put down amicus volunteer. When we started writing letters, I didn't use my home address. I used the address of the church I was serving at that time because honestly, I had a crazy idea in my head that if he had my real address and somehow got out of prison somehow, then I didn't want him to come to my home. During that first year, I kept wondering what I needed to do, what I needed to say to make this relationship work. I remember thinking, I should know what to do. I'm a minister, for God's sake. But because of the fear and anxiety I felt, I couldn't quite see his full humanity nor access my own full humanity. And I treated our barely formed relationship as a problem to solve, as something to fix. There must be something to do. It was only when I began to relax and to remember the connective tissue of reality that we were both a part of, he and I, to remember that as the foundation of my faith that I could let go of my need to do something. And when that happened, I could become, I did become, a more open and trusting person. A year into our relationship, I finally, somewhat sheepishly, admitted that I hadn't been using my home address. And then one day, as I filled out that visiting form and looked at that question, the relationship to inmate question, I wrote down, friend. Over the years, that's what we've become, deeply grounded in one another's lives, the muck and the pain and the joy that is there. I've journeyed with him as he's moved from maximum to minimum security, as his anger has dissipated, and as his own spiritual practice has grown. And he's journeyed with me as I've begun my ministry here, as I've become a father twice. We've crossed from one plane of reality to another, from old patterns and ways of being into something new. With my friend in prison and with our son, Jesse, and with many of you, when I stop worrying about doing and stop worrying about asking what should I do, everything shifts. And who am I becoming takes center stage. These stories, these examples, are moments, as Terry Tempest Williams says, of moving from one plane of reality to another, from what do I do to who am I becoming? As William says, what is required of us is spiritual. The initial temptation is to do, to fix, to advise. That's human, I do it. But the spiritual work, the work that requires deep humility is letting go of some of the doing and being and becoming something new. The spiritual work is knowing ourselves held in the connective tissue of reality claimed by those connections. And this, friends, is the work of the church. The church helps us become something new. It is the guiding question for our newly formed Faithful Action Leadership Council 
And that question is not what should we do in the community, but who will we become as we partner with organizations, as we do our work with a racial justice lens. And this year, leading up to Christmas, all of us will have the opportunity to become a living embodiment of the holidays, to not think about what we do at the holidays, but to become something new at the holidays. That season, the holy days, that's what holidays means, those holy days where the essence of the season is about reaching out to the least among us, providing and receiving hope in a dark time. And we will invite you this holiday season to become something new in relationship to the holidays, to reimagine how you spend your money at the holidays, to cut that in half and to redirect half of that to Beacon Interfaith Housing Collaborative to help youth and families and formerly incarcerated men know the gift of home. You will hear more about that in the coming months. But what I want you to know is that this church and this faith and what we're doing here is becoming. Becoming one practice at a time the change we wish to see in the world. One practice at a time we nurture our spirit, we heal and strengthen that web we are a part of. And those practices don't mean the problems of the world go away. But in the face of those problems, we become clear about who we are and who we want to be. We survive not by asking, what should we do? But by asking, who are we becoming? Who are we becoming? And that is my question for you this morning. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Who are we becoming together? May we become what we wish the world to be. Amen.